Welcome to the RUF City Campus Podcast. New York City is home to nearly 1 million undergraduate students, and RUF City Campus exists to reach those students with the gospel and equip them to serve. In order to accomplish this mission, we rely 100% on generous donations from individuals and churches. If you'd like to make a donation, please visit givetoruf.org today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast. I've been reading a book recently that a, a friend of mine recommended. It's called Atomic Habits. Some of you may have heard of this book. And it's about how to set up systems of habits to, to become your best self, to become the person that you want to be. And I started reading this book because I have this amazing ability to procrastinate, um, to swan- squander good opportunities, and uh, to waste time. And so I wanted to, some help in this particular area of my life. And this book has lots of helpful advice on how to make good habits easier, how to become more consistent in them, for, to how to have a, a life that's transformed by having good habits, how to make bad habits harder, how to eliminate bad habits. But the further I got into this book, the more anxious I got. In fact, I got so anxious that a few days ago, my loving wife took the book away from me and said, you're not allowed to read this book anymore because it's making you so anxious. And the reason that I got so anxious is because the book was promising something to me. The book was promising to me that if I could just implement this system, if I could just implement this system, that not only would my life change, I might become a little more successful and a little more productive, but that I would change, that I in in myself would be transformed into the truest, best, most successful, most self-disciplined, most peaceful, (laughs) most happy, most accomplished version of myself. And I got anxious because I knew that it wasn't going to work. I knew that like 265 pages worth of life hacks was not going to fix me. Was, was not going to, to all of a sudden like magically transform me into a more loving husband and father, uh, into a more wise and caring pastor, into a more consistent friend. It couldn't change me at my core. And it made me anxious. Because even though it might shift some of my circumstances around, it couldn't actually get at like the yuck that's down deep inside me. The, the, the self-absorption, the self-centeredness, the self-concentration that results in all kinds of shame and anxiety and fear and guilt in me and all kinds of hurt and pain in others, that it wasn't going to be able to touch that. And that made me anxious. The Bible's word for all of this, this yuck this stuff in us that causes us to hurt ourselves and hurt those around us and to uh, dismiss God or ignore God or even rebel against God. The Bible's word for that in us is sin. Now, why do I mention all this? I mention all this because last week we started a new series. The rest of the semester we're going to be looking at um, one chapter from the Bible, Romans chapter 8. It's one of the most glorious and beautiful chapters in all of the Bible. And And last week, my friend Russ opened up the first four verses of Romans 8 for us, and he told us about Paul's declaration of good news that there is now, in this moment, zero condemnation, no guilt, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the moment that you place your faith in Jesus, all your guilt is gone. All condemnation is gone. So the penalty for past sin, 
for present sin, for future sin, all of that is gone. That's what we looked at last week. But here's the question. That is good news, that the penalty for sin is gone. But what about the power of sin right now? Like, what about the yuck that's still in my life? Because forgiveness is wonderful, and we certainly should not dismiss that. But what about all the yuck that's still in my life? Even though I know I'm forgiven, even though I know God has taken away the penalty of sin, what about the power of sin? It feels like it still has power in my life. This yuck, how, how do we deal with that? Am I just stuck with it until I die? That's, that's what this passage is about. So we're going to look together at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. Let's turn our attention to God's word. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Uh, this is God's word. It's given to us in love. So let's pray and ask for his help as we study it tonight. God, would you please come and help us, help me, um, to hear what it is that you are speaking through this word? Uh, would you unclog our ears and open up our eyes and soften our hearts that we might receive your word with joy, that we might see your son and be glad? It's in him that we pray. Amen. So to really deal with the yuck in our lives, there are three things that Paul here in this passage is saying that we need. We need a new nature. We need a new power. And we need a new freedom. In in order to really deal with the yuck in our lives, this is where true change, deep and lasting and life-giving change comes from. It comes from a new nature, a new power, and a new freedom. So that's what we're going to look at this evening. First, a new nature Paul starts, I don't know if you noticed this, he starts with a pretty stark contrast here in verse 5. Look look at verse 5 again. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's category number one. And the other side of this category, the other side of this contrast is, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So this first category that Paul is talking about, he, he calls people who are living according to the flesh. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Um, Before we can really define exactly what that means, we have to clear away some some misconceptions about what this word flesh means in the Bible. Because sometimes when when we hear somebody like Paul, we see somebody like Paul using the word flesh in a negative sense. One of the things that we can think is Paul, this is Paul's shorthand for, for sex and sexuality and sexual desire. And so we can think, oh, Paul is just being like anti sex here. Another one of the things that we think is we, we, we hear the word flesh and we think that Paul is, is using that as his shorthand for like physicality, 
for having a body. And, um, and that Paul is being anti-physical. He's setting up like almost a, a Gnostic dualism. And that what is good is the spiritual, is the ethereal, and what is bad um, is the physical. And we need to be delivered from the physical into the ethereal. And neither of those things is what Paul is getting at here. And this is sort of another conversation for another day. But we'll, we'll, we'll say this. One of the reasons we know Paul is not being anti-sex here is because the Bible is not anti-sex. You may not know this, but the very first command in the Bible is to have sex. Adam and Eve, way back in the Garden of Eden, the first thing that God says to them to do is to be fruitful and multiply. You know what that means? Make some babies. That's the first command in the Bible. The Bible is not anti-sex, okay? Uh, the Bible is also not anti-body. The Bible is not anti-being in a body, being physical. Jesus himself, when he was raised from the dead, when he walked out of the grave, he walked out of the grave in a body, in a physical body. In fact, the Gospels go to great lengths to show that Jesus was raised from the dead in a physical body. He was not a ghost. He sat down, he ate meals with his disciples. He walked around, they put their hands in his side and in the scars. He was raised in a physical body. So Paul's not being anti-sex. He's not being anti-body. So what is Paul talking about here? What does it mean? when he uses this language of in the flesh. In the flesh means to have a life that is turned in on itself. To have a life that's turned in on itself. He uses this phrase throughout this passage of having your mind set on something. Having your mind set on the flesh, the things of the flesh or the things of the spirit. And mind, in our culture, we tend to think about the mind as like our cognition, our thinking. But in the world of the Bible, your mind is, is not merely your thinking. It's, it's your heart. It is your affections. It's your whole self. It's the core of your being. So Paul is not talking about only your thoughts. He's talking about what your heart is most engrossed in. That thing that has captured your imagination. That thing that has captured your, your affections. And so the person who is in the flesh is the person who is preoccupied with, who, who is captivated by themselves who is captivated by, they have, they have a life that's turned in on itself. A life without real regard for God or others. So this can look like a few different things. One of this, the ways that this can like play itself out is it can look like badness. And this is fairly obvious, right? To have a life turned in on itself looks like, looks like cheating. It looks like greed. Looks like lying, it looks like abuse, it looks like oppression, it looks like doing things that are openly and unapologetically selfish. So that's one way that, that having a life that's turned in on itself can play itself out. But the other way is not badness, it actually can look like goodness. Having a life that's turned in on itself can actually look like goodness. Um, and that's a little bit harder to see. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. We can, we can do something nice for someone. You can do something kind and generous for someone but do it in a totally selfish way, a way that's actually turned in on itself. For example, like my wife loves to have fresh flowers in the house and so in our apartment. And so I, you know, I could bring her fresh, fresh flowers because I know that she loves that. But if I'm doing that because I want her to not be mad at me about something anymore, or if I'm doing that because I want her to, to do something nice for me later on, I'm not really giving her the flowers. I'm giving me the flowers. That's not a gift to her. That's a gift to me. That's actually a selfish thing that I'm doing. Like you can open up your Bible and read it and you can pray. But, but if you are doing that because you're afraid that God is out to get you and you're trying to get him off your case, 
Or if you're doing that because you think that it will make it so that God, you're like putting in some, some chips in the religious machine and, and you're hoping that if I do this, then God's going to owe me a good day, a better day or a better life. Then you're really not doing that because you love God. It looks like goodness on the outside, but it's actually selfishness. Because you're really not doing that because you want to love and serve God. You're doing that to love and serve yourself. You can, you can serve the poor and seek justice for the oppressed, which is something that God commands his people to do. But if you are doing that because you want the satisfying feeling of having something done something good for others, or because you want to be known as someone who cares for the poor and the oppressed, or because you want to ensure that, that you've done something with your life that matters, if you're doing it for any of those reasons, you're not really serving the poor, you're serving yourself. See, it's a, it's a life turned in on itself. All these things can look like good things on the outside, but they're actually deeply selfish things. And Paul's point here in this passage is that left to ourselves, this is actually the best we can do. Left to ourselves, this is who we are. We, we can't not be selfish. That unhelped by God's grace, at bottom, everything we do is turned in on itself, is about serving ourselves. But here's the good news. Paul doesn't stop there after verse 8. He says this isn't the only way to live. This isn't the only option. At verse 9, Paul Paul hits a transition. Look with me at verse 9. He says, you, however, he's writing to Christians in Rome. He says, you, Christian, in Rome, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if, if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. In other words, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, you, you are not in the flesh. You, you actually, by God's grace, this is not who you are anymore if you are a Christian. You have been transformed. You've been given a new nature, a new core. Not one that is, that is turned in on itself, but one that has actually been turned out by God through his grace towards God and towards your neighbor. You've been fundamentally changed by God's spirit. There's, a, there's now a new you, the old you, the, the flesh, the, the life turned in on itself is dead in sin and the new you has been brought to life by righteousness. The old you was under condemnation. This is what we looked at last week. It was under a death sentence because of your life in the flesh. But the good news that Paul gave us last week is that that condemnation is gone. And the reason that it's gone is because your life in the flesh Your life turned in on itself and the condemnation that it deserves is as dead as Jesus was on the cross. He took it to the grave with him. And then what happened? He didn't stay there, did he? He took it to the grave with him and then he was raised to new life and you were raised with him. This is how Paul describes it in another book uh, to a different church in in the letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter two, he says, and you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you once walked, but God... It's the biggest but in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul is saying that the Christian is someone who has been fundamentally changed. Not because they have done something great, not because they are amazing or God saw something in, in them, but purely by God's grace. Grace, Their very core has been reanimated and redirected. It's no longer turned in, but it's turned out by God, towards God, and towards our neighbors. Here's the question. How? How does God do this? How does he bring what is dead...
to life? And the answer is he fills us with a new power. Look at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Don't miss what Paul is saying here. He's saying he puts the very spirit of God in you. He puts eternal resurrection life inside you. The same spirit of power who raised Jesus from the dead, that same person, that same power resides in you if you are a Christian. Now, this is a, this is a heady thing, a hard thing to grasp. I want to see if I can illustrate it for you. Um, when I was a kid, for a few years, I was involved in the Boy Scouts. And uh, we would go camping. We'd go on these backpacking trips. And one of the first backpacking trips we ever went on, I don't know if you've ever been backpacking, but when you go backpacking, um, the only food and water that you have is the food and water that you bring with you or the food and water that you find in the woods while you're out there. And we were out there for several days and water is really heavy, so you couldn't carry all the water that you need with you. And so while we were out there, after a couple of days, we ran out of water, we had to go find new water. And so um, we set up camp, we'd been hiking all day and we, we hiked downhill to find a creek and we find this creek that has a bunch of water in it and we have this like expandable like canister of, for water. It's clear. So we fill this thing up with water from the creek and we bring it back up to our campsite. But here's the problem. I don't know if you've ever been in the woods, but um, the water that you find in a creek, you can't just drink it. In most places in the United States, you can't just drink right out of the creek because it will poison you. Like it will make you deeply ill and it will be very unpleasant for you and everyone around you. And so we couldn't just drink this water. It was actually poisonous to us. So what we had were these little iodine tablet, tablets. They looked like little brown pills. And you drop it inside this, this canteen, this, this canister of water, and it begins to dissolve. And as it begins to dissolve, you can actually see it. It's really sort of mesmerizing to watch because it begins to dissolve and the, like, the brownishness of the iodine tablet begins to like, leak out throughout the whole canister. And the canister is clear so you can see it. And it begins to make its way out to the far corners. And what it's doing as it, spread, as it dissolves and as it spreads out is it's actually like eating up and killing all the nasty bacteria that's in that water. And so if you let it sit there for long enough, what it does is it actually transforms this entire canister full of water. What was before poison now becomes clean and drinkable because it eats up all the bacteria, it kills it, and now you can drink it and it will give you life. And what Paul is saying here in this passage is that when you place your faith in Christ, when God places his spirit in you, the tablet has dropped into the mixture. And that this, this cleansing, begin, this resurrection life has begun to work its way out in your life. And eventually it will overtake your entire life. This is what Paul says in a different letter in Philippians chapter 1. He says, he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. That once that tablet drops, you are being changed from the inside out. Even when you don't feel like it, even when it doesn't seem like that's what's happening, there is this new power that God has placed inside you, and it is changing you. It is transforming you from the inside out. And God will bring that process to fullness. He will bring it to completion. This, this process of change in the life of a Christian, the Bible often refers to this as sanctification, being, being made holy, uh, being, being cleansed, being made clean. And one theologian talks about sanctification this way, and I love this. He says, sanctification is heaven begun in the soul. 
This process of being transformed from the inside out is heaven begun in the soul. And he continues, sanctification and glory. Glory is the word for like who you will be when Jesus returns and makes all things new. He says, sanctification and glory differ only in degree. Sanctification is glory in the seed. And glory is sanctification in the flower. He began this work. He will carry it to completion. He will bring that seed to blossom into a glorious flower. That's the promise here. But this brings us back to our original question. What do we do with the yuck? What do we do right now? Before the seed grows into a flower, before it's like even poked a little bud up from underneath the soil, like what do we do? Because right now we want to be more patient, but if we're honest, we still fume underneath the surface when people cross us. And right now, we are still crushed with anxiety when things don't appear to be going our way. And right now, even when we try to do the right thing, we find that we either don't do it well or can't do it at all. Or if we do it, we do it for the wrong reasons. Like, what do we do? We still have all this selfishness and pride and fear and shame that we just can't seem to get rid of. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you have a new nature. You have a new power. And you have a new freedom. You have a new freedom that all of that yuck does not own you anymore. It has no real power over you anymore. You have a new freedom. Listen to how Paul describes this in verse 12 and 13. He says, so then, in other words, because you've been transformed from the inside out, because you have this new nature, because you have this new power in you, we are debtors, not to the flesh. In other words, you don't owe that life anything. You do not belong to that world anymore. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. You don't belong to that life. It is no longer your reality. Listen, when the semester is over, you would be a crazy person if you went back into the library to pull some all-nighters, right? That would be insane. Like, why would you go back into the library and sit at a desk and chug some Red Bull and like feverishly type out a paper when the semester is over? Because that life is not your reality anymore when the semester is over. Like it doesn't, you don't owe your professor anything. All the exams have been turned in. All the papers have been turned in. Like everything's done. So why would you go back to that old life? That's what Paul is saying here. Why would you return to the life that's turned in on itself? Why would you return to selfishness, to pride, to lust, to bitterness, to outrage, to anxiety, to shame, to guilt? Why would you return to that? You don't owe them anything. You don't owe them anything. You've been set free. You can like skip away into the summertime. The semester is over. Now, let's get practical here for a minute. What does that look like? What does it look like to live freely? If this really is true, that we have this, this, new, uh, this new freedom, what does it look like? So three things and then we'll close. Um, it looks like looking at yourself, holding on to Jesus, and walking in freedom. Looking at yourself, holding on to Jesus, and walking in freedom. What do I mean by that? Um, Looking at yourself means taking an honest assessment, like looking in the spiritual mirror and taking an honest assessment of your actions and your motivations, of the things that you do and the reasons that you do those things. So maybe you look in the mirror, spiritually speaking, and you realize like, oh, wow, I, I am like pretty impatient pretty harsh, pretty bitter, and unforgiving towards my roommates and my friends. So that might be the action that you see on the outside. 
But then you've got to go beneath the surface and you have to ask yourself, okay, why is that? Where's that coming from? What's the motivation? And what you might see is like, well, maybe, you know, my roommates treat me in such a way that sometimes I feel invisible. I feel dismissed. I feel overlooked. And being harsh towards them is a way for me to fight for them to see me and to notice me and to honor me. But also, if I'm honest, it's also a way for me to punish them for for the ways that I feel like they have hurt me and mistreated me. And so we have, to, we have to take an honest look at ourselves, at both our actions and our motivations. And then we have to look at those things and say, guess what? You're dead to me. <laughs> I don't owe you anything. You went to the grave with Jesus. So we have to look at ourselves. But the second thing we have to do is we have to hold on to Jesus. Because in those moments where you feel dismissed or ignored by your friends or by your roommates, what you have to hold on to is that even if they don't see you, Jesus sees you. Even if they don't recognize you and honor you, Jesus knows your name and he knows the number of hairs on your head and he knows your pain. He knows what it's like to be mistreated. He knows what it's like to be ignored. He knows what it's like to be hurt. In fact, he was mistreated so much, he was mistreated unto his own death in order to rescue you out of your own unforgiveness, out of your own bitterness, out of your own tendency to punish with your words rather than to heal with them. So even when other people seem to to diminish you and dismiss you, he sees you and he knows you and you are of infinite value to him. And so you've got to hold on to him. So you've got to look at yourself. You've got to hold on to Jesus. And lastly, walk in freedom. Walk in freedom. That when your friends are being punks and you want to be punks right back to them, you can know that you don't owe your bitterness anything. You don't owe harshness anything, that they died with Jesus. And therefore, we actually must not respond with harshness because that's not who we are anymore. You've been fundamentally changed. And because of the power of the Spirit, you are actually free to respond in love and in kindness. Now, will we do this perfectly? Of course not. Will we do this always? Of course not. And this doesn't mean that, for instance, your roommates just get to walk all over you. But what it does mean is that your heart towards them begins to be transformed. It begins to be softened and changed because you see how Jesus was infinitely merciful with you and therefore it it actually equips you to be merciful, to respond with mercy towards them. But here's the thing, that's a really difficult task. That is an incredibly difficult task to try to uproot all of the yuck that we find in ourselves. It would be like someone coming to you and saying, listen, I need you to write me a musical. And I need that musical to be as good as or better than Hamilton. So it needs to be witty and quick and funny and sharp. It needs to make me laugh, but it also needs to make me cry. Um, The music has to be engaging and heartfelt. Oh, and it needs to win at least 11 Tonys, or you and all of your work will be considered a complete and utter failure, right? You would look at that person and be like, I'm sorry, who do you think I am? Like, I, I can't do that. In fact, I think the person you need to talk to is Lin-Manuel Miranda. He's the only one on the face of the earth with that skill set. It's an impossible task. We, we couldn't do it. But imagine if, if Lin-Manuel Miranda could somehow take up residence inside you. I know that's a weird thought, right? But just go with me. <laughs> that like his energy 
and his creativity and his wit and his genius could somehow become your central animating power, that would be a game changer. Then you might actually be able to accomplish that task. And what Romans 8 is saying is that you have that power in you if you are a Christian. That God himself has taken up residence within you with resurrection power. Now listen, it takes a long time to write a musical like Hamilton. It takes even longer to learn how to walk in the freedom that Jesus has accomplished for us. This does not happen overnight. It it takes your lifetime and then some. Philippians 1, when Paul says, he who began this good work in you will carry it on to completion, he finishes that sentence by saying, in the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, the day that Jesus returns, that's the day that this work will be done. That's the day that this work will, will be completed. But what this passage is is saying is that you are not stuck in the yuck. You have been fundamentally changed from the inside. You have a new nature and a new power. And those two things cut you loose to walk with a new freedom in love towards God and towards your neighbor. Would you pray with me?